0: Deviations in Islamic history, the first step of saving humanity from the pessimists, the revival of Islam, the qualifications of the Islamic community for leading humanity. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to episode 3 of our podcast titled Living with the Shuruh, where we discuss in detail the book titled Shuruh, commentaries and explanations of Sayyid Qutb's milestones. We discuss it on a weekly basis with the intent hopefully of finishing in a year's time. As we've said in the previous podcast, We will be breaking up the introduction chapter of the book into four sections, and we will hopefully try to cover a section each week and finish by the end of the month. Today is the third episode within the chapter, the introduction. In this episode, we intend to cover three main sub-chapters. The first is titled, Deviations in Islamic History. Now, this subchapter goes over a broad view of the Islamic history from the beginning of the caliphate towards the end of the Islamic history and up till now today. It focuses on the impact, hereditary rule, i.e. having crown princes within the caliphate and what that led to in terms of the decline and the deviation through the Islamic civilization. Now, what do we mean by hereditary rule? What do we mean by crown princeship? This is the practice that was begun by one of the first caliphates. It's probably caliphate number 6 or 7 depending on how you count. His name was Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan. He was one of the Sahaba. But then when he was at the end of his life when he was trying to pass the caliphate along he named his son as his successor. This was the first time within the Islamic history that this happened. All the other caliphates before him, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali, they were appointed by the people. Either if it was just the people within Medina or the Islamic world at large, the people looked and agreed via consensus that so-and-so should be the next person. Might have been the most pious, the most active, however you may look at it, but it was not a hereditary succession. Now the problem that came from having the succession within the caliphate determined by ancestry and kinship, was that you ended up with variable successors. You could no longer appoint somebody based on their qualifications and merits, but based on whose son they were. This led to variable successors, as we said. Sometimes you had successors who were amazingly good, who really pushed the horizon of Islam forward, such as Umar ibn Abdul Aziz was part of the Umayyad dynasty who in his time Islam reached levels that it never reached ever since and as mentioned in the book you had scenarios where people were directly complaining to the caliph about issues in their own neighborhoods and cities and towns and he would directly try to address their issues. You had scenarios where the funds within the treasury were overflowing and the caliphate had to cut down on the zakah he was collecting from the people, cut down on the jizya he was collecting from the non-Muslim inhabitants within the Islamic world because they did not need as much money anymore. This never happened since. But then you'd also have much less competent successors, you know, to the point where some of them were just figureheads and sometimes even children. You know, the book mentions seven years old. They might have been even younger than that. Or you'd have successors whose own faith was suspect, in terms of their understanding of the faith itself, their ability to really hold Islam and the people accountable to their faith. So so this was a major problem of having hereditary rule enter the caliphate. Another problem that... Also happened as which stems from having all these weak successors within the caliphate. Since the caliphate was considered the upholder of the Islamic ideal, considered the final barrier towards any kind of deviation, if the caliphate himself was weak, then you'd have all you know, you'd have members of society who were deviating and nobody there to correct them and push them back to the straight path. So you'd had all these various groups and divisions with weird philosophies, weird beliefs, incorrect beliefs, some of them you know, to a point where they were callously murdering Muslims, like the book mentions, invading Mecca, stealing the black stone from the Kaaba, and taking it with them, and so on and so forth. And this is because the ruler himself was not up to the task. The final part in this subchapter is also very important, and that was the disassociation that happened between the head and the body of the Muslim nation. People were no longer interested in their ruler because they were no longer involved in the process of picking the ruler. This led to continued corruption. This led to finally a loss of the sense of ownership that the individual Muslims had regarding their community, regarding their society, their nation. Nobody really had the sense of ownership because they felt disassociated from the Muslim government itself, which is very different when you look at the history of the Islamic Caliph or Caliphate within the first four Caliphs. You had individuals, common citizens, holding Khalif Umar, Abu Bakr, Uthman, and Ali to task and saying, We will not listen to you, we will not obey you until you explain to us how this came to be. Either it would have been, you know, the distribution of wealth their decisions within certain judgments but people felt involved in the government to the point where they would say that we will not listen and obey until you explain this this to us this was almost unheard of and completely disappeared by the advent of the Abbasid caliphate and maybe even a little bit before that and definitely beyond that as well and this was a major deviation in islamic history the 2nd subchapter is titled, The First Step of Saving Humanity from the Precipice, The Revival of Islam. And there's a quote in the beginning from the Milestones, which I think is very important, and I'd rather quote it here instead of trying to paraphrase it. Sayyid Qutb says, quote, It is necessary to revive that Muslim community which is buried under the debris of the man-made traditions of several generations, and which is crushed under the weight of those false laws and customs which are not even remotely related to Islamic teachings, and which, in spite of all this, calls itself the world of Islam. I am aware that between the attempt at revival and the attainment of leadership, there is a great distance as the Muslim community has long ago vanished from existence and from observation, and the leadership of mankind has long since passed to other ideologies and other nations, other concepts, and other systems. This was the era during which Europe's genius created its marvelous works in science, culture, law, and material production, due to which mankind has progressed to great heights of creativity and material comfort. It is not easy to find fault with the inventors of such marvelous things, especially since what we call the word of Islam is completely devoid of all this beauty. But in spite of all this, it is necessary to revive Islam. The distance between the revival of Islam and the attainment of world leadership may be vast, and there may be great difficulties on the way, but the first step must be taken for the revival of Islam. End quote. I think in that last few sentences Sayyid Khutub summarizes the necessity of reviving Islam, the long distance between the point of beginning and the attainment of world leadership, but the necessity of taking that first step. Now let us break down that section. The current world state today is a state of jahiliyyah. Jahiliyyah is an entire construct, which we defined in the first episode as a corrupted state of existence where people have granted obedience in worship to others besides Allah. It is the state of complete ignorance of divine guidance. Although the root meaning of jahiliyyah is ignorance, as a term it has a much broader scope and denotes any time or place when Islam is not the pure living reality in human society. Even our technologically and scientifically advanced era, which is supposedly very knowledgeable, is still jahiliyyah, because Islam is not the pure living reality in society. This term can therefore be used to describe any place, country, or time where jahiliyyah is prevalent. So this entire construct of jahiliyyah, this entire societal, governmental, military construct, economic, financial construct of Jahiliyyah with all its arts, its education, its ideologies, everything. It took centuries of building. It's not going to fall down in one day. It'll fight with extreme aggression to maintain its existence, its material power, and its culture. We must be aware of the nature of this battle. This is a battle for supremacy, for world leadership. This is a battle where we begin from zero and our opponent has the entire card deck. This is a battle where we have zero material capability, zero manpower, zero finances compared to our opponent, compared to that jahiliyyah with that entire construct. We must recognize that all we carry All we are, are a few individuals, a handful of individuals that carry their faith with them. But we must know that there is no other way. There is no other way except to take that first step. One of my favorite quotes is the one that says, although it's kind of cliche, but it says, The journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. The journey from having this faith. Established in one person's heart. And then that one person trying to shine their faith and illuminate other hearts. And then slowly grow into a group. And that group then try to attempt a movement. And that movement trying to interact with the society. Trying to draw people and other individuals and attract them and bring them into their own fold. And then eventually taking over that society. And then that society growing and becoming a nation, and then that nation spreading, affecting other nations, and eventually developing an entire civilization. It's more than a thousand miles. It's a million light years away. But we must work towards it. And we must begin with that first step. With the understanding that Islam does not exist anymore. It must be revived. It must be brought back. And that Islam is submission to Allah, is having faith and carrying that iman with you, and knowing that that is the most valuable thing that you can present to humanity today. Humanity does not need science and technological advancements. The next and final chapter in this episode is titled The Qualifications of the Islamic Community for Leading Humanity. As we just said in the end of this past subsection, our qualifications are not material. What we have to offer is not progress that exceeds Europe's, and as an extension, America's progress and achievements. Because we will never catch up with them. The so-called Islamic world is decades and centuries behind Europe's advancements. The Islamic world, the so-called Islamic world will never catch up with the West in terms of scientific and technological advancements. It will never reach to even compete with them in that regards. But the good thing is that is not what we have to present anyways. That is not the qualification that we carry with us when we bid to lead humanity. What we carry is, and I quote from the book, quote, faith in a way of life which on the one hand, conserves the benefits of modern science and technology, and on the other, fulfills the basic human needs on the same level of excellence as technology has fulfilled them in the sphere of material comfort. End quote. This is what we have to present to society and humanity today. This is the qualifications that we carry when we bid to lead humanity today. That we carry a faith in a way of life, That, as we said in previous episodes, will allow the bird to fly with both wings. That looks at both sides of the coin. It doesn't only focus on the scientific and technological and materialistic aspects of human progress, but it also looks at fulfilling the basic human needs at the same level of excellence as the technology has fulfilled them in the sphere of material comfort. The book then goes on to identify what Islam considers a human society. Islam considers the Muslim society as the only human society. This is because Islam understands the role of mankind on earth. It recognizes that mankind was brought onto earth to worship and obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to completely submit to Him, and to develop this earth based on Allah's guidance and how He wishes. The highest dignity for mankind is achieved when they exclusively worship Allah and when they uphold His authority and sovereignty in society. Any other scenario that deviates from this, any other situation and environment that deviates from this, will deny mankind their proper role on earth. This will eventually lead to discordance within the human experience. People will walk around on earth knowing that there's something missing in their lives. There's some unsatisfied portion of their souls, their inner beings, their purpose, because they have not obeyed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and exclusively worshipped Him and upheld His authority and sovereignty in society. And this is what the author means when he says that a non-Muslim society will inevitably lower man to a level below that of animals. Because animals perform their intended role. Cattle, other livestock, beasts of burden, predators and prey, plants, bacteria, whatever you may think of, each creature on earth has an intended role that it fulfills. It does not deviate from it. Mankind was given the choice to either stick to their role and be happy or to deviate from it and be tormented here on earth before even the hereafter. It is that sense of discordance that we are talking about, that sense of unfulfilled purpose. And when that is missing, that is jahiliyyah. And if we look at the entire world today, the entire world is in jahiliyyah. I like the word that Khotab uses when he says, the whole world is steeped in jahiriyeh. This is not a mere in and out plunging you know this whole world has been marinating in jahiliya for decades and centuries we must come from a place of certainty when we describe the world as steeped in jahiliya we must be absolutely confident in this fact we must continuously remind ourselves why we consider the world to be in jahiliya We must always look at the definition of jahiliyya until it becomes second nature, until we walk on this earth recognizing that every single society, every single household and family and government and nation is steeped in jahiliyya. I'll keep using that word until I get tired of it. Steeped in jahiliyya. It is true. We must be so confident that it borders on but does not pass into arrogance we must firmly believe that what we hold is the truth and we that we are the only carriers of the truth because the truth which is submitting to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the truth that islam liberates mankind from all forms of worship except that to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the truth that jahriya is worshiping everything and anything and all entities except allah this We are the only carriers of this. We must be very confident in this fact. We must know that there is no other truth. There is no alternative facts. There are no other alternative truths. There is only one truth, which is that mankind has to submit to Allah, that Islam liberates mankind from all worships except that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that jahiliyyah makes mankind submit to other entities except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The problem is that people today try to obfuscate. They try to confuse matters together. They say, we will assign our prayer, we will assign our outwardly forms of worship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We will go to the mosques, we will pray five times a day, we will fast in Ramadan. But then, we will deny Allah the right to legislate, to set laws for governance. We will deny Allah the right to set values and standards, to describe what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. And when they do this, they are associating partners with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. They are not letting Allah run the ship. They are saying, "Nope, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala can have this parts of our lives: our five prayers, our fasts, our Jum'as, our Ramadans. But the rest of the year, it's ours. We do with it what we please." This is associating partners with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. This is shirk. And this is absolutely unacceptable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah says in the Qur'an, la اللَّهَ an bihi wa ma دُونِ ذلك لمن يشاء. Allah does not forgive associating partners with him. He will forgive anything else to whoever he pleases. But he will not forgive shirk. This is a very important thing that we must recognize. We must understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not only expecting us to pray to him, is not only expecting us to fast for him, to pay zakah for him, to make hajj for him, but is also expecting us to take our laws, our values, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And if we don't, it's shirk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living with the Shiroh where we discuss on a weekly basis the book titled Shuroh, Commentaries and Explanations of Sayyid Qutb's Milestones. All praise is to Allah, and any errors are mine and mine alone. My name is Khalid Mohamood, spelled as K-H-A-L-I-D as in David, Mohamood, M-O-H-A-M-O-O-D. You may reach me on Twitter or Facebook at that name, or email me at khalid m-o-h-a-m-o-o-d at gmail.com Until next time, Jazakumullah khairan, wassalamu alaykum, wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.